Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Portfolio Manager Alex Gold joins us on the program today. Alex manages Fidelity's Global Healthcare Fund for Canadian Investors. And today he looks at what trends shaped 2023 and what potential sectors could affect 2024. Alex says our aging population continues to drive the healthcare sector. It's anticipated that the 65 plus population will rise from 750 million to 1.5 billion by 2030. This will open up opportunity in the healthcare sector driven by innovation advancements in healthcare companies. A big theme as of late has been anti-obesity drugs. Novo Nordisk, for example, has been fighting the ongoing epidemic of diabetes and obesity for over a decade. The Danish drug manufacturer has seen an incredible 1,953% increase since 2010. Alex points out that the fund is underweight pharma and large biotech and overweight managed care, particularly focusing on major insurance companies. This podcast was recorded on November 22, 2023. I want to actually just roll back a little bit further than, than this year and talk about the opportunity to invest in healthcare, what, what it represents. It's seen as often defensive, um, but it's got the growth. If you could roll back, I don't know, a decade, maybe, maybe beyond that, what sort of uh, impact has it had to those investors who have it in their portfolio? Yeah, sure. So it's a good question. And it's important because we've had so much noise recently, both at a macro level, but also with healthcare, whether it's elections or COVID. Um, and it is important to step back and look at the bigger picture. So the, the, the first key driver is the aging of the population. The over 65 year olds population growth is relatively predictable in a period of time or a world that is not predictable. And so we can say with a reasonably high degree of confidence that we're going to go from about 750 million people aged over 65 currently to about 1.5 billion people globally will be aged over 65 years old by 2050. You know, that's just simple life expectancy. Um, I mean, more than double. That's unbelievable. Exactly. It's, it's an, and obviously, as you would intuitively expect, if you have an older population, they do have a greater healthcare need. So that is the primary long-term structural driver for healthcare. And that's, you know, also been a tailwind, um, you know, modestly to demand over the last decade. So if I think about, you know, what has healthcare done over the last decade, and there's been periods of outperformance, periods of underperformance, but, you know, simplistically, if I you know, just look at the numbers, you know, on my Bloomberg screen now, you know, the index, from beginning of 2010, for example, to today, the including dividends, the index for the healthcare is up 328%. So, you know, 11% per annum since 2010. And wow. the global MSCI ACQUI, so the all, all sector index, is up about 220%. So 328% for healthcare and the, versus the global index of 220 that's you know significant outperformance driven largely by you know those long-term drivers of aging population and all the innovation that healthcare companies bring to, to their patients well it's and it's incredible and as you say it's across it's across devices it's across research it's across pharma there's and we'll, we'll get into all the different sectors with our subsectors within 
the biggest theme that I think everyone is reading about it at really every level of whoever reads about anything has read about anti-obesity drugs in the last few months does seem to be an explosion. Uh, right set us on what this means to certain healthcare companies. I mean, it, we know in some of the Nordic countries, it represents their entire economy. I mean, it's astonishing what um, the outlook is. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when I pulled up that, the data uh, for the healthcare index versus global index, I thought, well, let's see how Novo Nordisk, which is that the Danish um, drug manufacturer, you know, what's, what have they actually done exactly over that period? And yeah, Novo Nordisk since the beginning of 2010 is up 1,950%, um, and you know, which is 24% compounded return. And the reason for that is because for the prior, the most of the last decade, they've been very focused on treating people with diabetes and treating their blood sugar levels in the best possible way because diabetes is an epidemic, but actually so is obesity. And the latest drugs, of you, as you have indicated, have been focused on trying to treat that population. And there's over 700 million people globally who are, you know, um, diagnosed as obese. And there's, you know, the narrative has changed. It's not just a um, kind of a, you know, an eating, you know, disorder. It's actually, you know, an underlying disease. There are huge associated comorbidities, whether it's heart disease, heart failure, um, sleep apnea, uh, kidney, kidney issues associated with obesity and actually i think increasingly now that we have a drug which can reduce your obesity your body weight by 20 percent um an injectable and they're developing the oral versions as well along with eli Lilly. you know there is a real opportunity for this to become probably the biggest drug market ever uh, people are expecting obesity drugs to be about 100 billion dollars by 2030 which would be the biggest market ever and it's because of the a lot of the associated benefits of um, treating obesity. Does it does it make it um, a one stock story in terms of a lot of the different subsectors? I mean, what, what we also keep hearing about is sort of the legs of the story is that it's knocking out. I mean, you'll tell me what's correct, but no, certain heart disease pills are perhaps less needed if you're someone is dropping weight, there's there's less exposure to other types of comorbidities, as you say. Is it taking over the story in many of the subsectors of healthcare? Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of noise and folks about GLP-1, which is the drug, GLP-1 winners and GLP-1 losers. And the GLP-1 winners, obviously, the manufacturers, Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly. Uh, but there's, you know, a tale of, you know, other drug companies trying to catch up and produce drugs as well. But it's, you know, they're years behind. It's not easy to, you know, to catch up with all the clinical trials and the safety and the, the iterative um, improvements which those companies have made to get to this commercial point. Uh, but there are other winners, you know, companies who are helping manufacture the drugs for them, companies that are helping you know, produce the, the vials, the actual injectable, um, you know, cartridges used to, to, to have the drugs. Those companies are also doing well. And conversely, some of the companies which are being disrupted are those that, um, you know, produce, you know, continuous glucose monitoring patches. Um, some of those kind of CGM companies, people are concerned that if you treat 15% of the US population, for example, potentially, it takes these obesity drugs by 2030, then there should be less diabetics in future years in 2040. And so people are saying, okay, what's the terminal value 
that we should attribute to these companies who are helping treat diabetes. So there are lots of implications, but even the CEO of Walmart is highlighting that you know the basket size, the average basket size is potentially being impacted, and you know some of the the other staple companies, you know, consumer staple companies in the US are highlighting some potential disruption, potentially modest, it's unknown at this stage, but you know, if your appetite is suppressed, you are eating less food. So there could be implications far beyond healthcare. So how much of what you're doing right now, in addition to, to obviously making sure that you're exposed in the areas that, that make sense for this for this theme and this this particular drug, type of drug, how much of it is avoiding the losers as well? I mean, that must take up time. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, it is. And, you know, some of the um, some of the opportunities are actually where some of the perceived losers have probably sold off too much. And actually, when you look at some of the data, you know, for example, Abbott uh, also, you know, have released data about their continuous glucose monitoring product Libra um, and you know, and as has Dexcom and Intellect, for example, which are some of the other diabetes uh, manufacturers which have been impacted. And, you know, they released data saying, actually, there, there could be a positive correlation between, um, you know, the use of, of obesity management drugs, as well as our continuous glucose monitoring, they could be used in partnership together to try and control both your diabetes and your and your weight. So, it's, it's really uncertain at this point what the impact will be. And some of the companies have sold off 40, 50%, which in some cases we think actually may present an opportunity. Fascinating. What What is the other biggest theme in healthcare? I, mean, I think you're gonna say Alzheimer's, but I'm, I'm curious, this again is in the pharma side of things. Um, is it Alzheimer's? Is that the biggest sort of crack? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's generally the biggest opportunities are where there is unmet need. Um, and, you know, oncology has obviously been a, an important theme over the last decade and in particular targeted oncology, precision targeted treatments and companies like Merck and Bristol-Myers and AstraZeneca have made great progress there, but still lots of progress to come in coming years. But, you know, obesity was one of the other, you know, 700 million patients. That's another great opportunity. And then the final one is is Alzheimer's, where there is, you know, huge, you know, um, you know, population of patients with Alzheimer's, particularly as the population ages, but also there's no treatment. So it's an, a large unmet need, um, a bit like obesity was. And so um, we have this year had, you know, breakthrough innovation from Biogen and their Japanese partner, Isai, as well as Eli Lilly. Eli Lilly has had both obesity and um, Alzheimer's, which is part of the reason why the share price has been so strong. But um, Alzheimer's is, is a really interesting opportunity. Um, the, con the concern um, is that the rollout is slow because the drugs have been approved, but you have to do PET scans. It's kind of for early onset Alzheimer's. So it's, it's quite laborious. It's not just taking a pill. It's, you know, or, or having one injectable. It's having regular treatments. Um, it's intravenous. Um, you have to go, you know, take somebody with early onset dementia or Alzheimer's to to the hospital care setting, they have to have scans. You know, the hospitals are still gearing up to try and um, enable the treatment for their patients. But it's it, at this stage, it's, it's at least there are some drugs on the market, but it's taking time to roll them out to the patients. Fascinating. Within the positioning within the portfolio, um, you mentioned the hospitals. Is managed care? Is 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 this an area? of underweight, overweight. Take us through some of your underweights and overweights within the portfolio positioning right now. Yeah, so I mean, also just 
on obesity specifically, we've got about 10% of the fund in that area through Novo Lilly and um, like a, a small kind of contract manufacturer called Gerishima in Germany. Um, so we've kind of got, you know, reasonable exposure there, but just cognizant of the valuations, so trying to manage the risk as well. Um, you know, we do continue to be underweight pharma and, and large biotech in general, just because um, we think, you know, you've got to be selective in terms of the opportunities because a lot of the companies do have significant patent expiries coming up. And so they've got defensive cash flows, their products are completely non-discretionary, very resilient in a recession, but I think you need to, um, you know, allocate capital cautiously to those where um, you're not taking too much risk on the, on the pipeline, for example. Um, you know, elsewhere, you know, the primary areas of you know, of overweights are managed care, which, you know, the big insurance companies like United Healthcare, Humana, Elevance, we think those are, you know, really interesting opportunities because as most people will appreciate, this time in a year we'll be having the US elections. There's a lot of conjecture with Donald Trump and, you know, Biden's health, but you know, that does create some noise, you know, having the twenty twenty four US elections. And I think, you know, that's reflected perhaps in some of the the valuation multiples for the managed care sector, which I think is an opportunity because I think there is unlikely to be any significant change to the, the healthcare landscape. So the managed care is an area that we like. And then we've got a couple of other areas such as tools and med tech, which we're, I also am overweight. A little bit about inventories. I think we spoke about this last time. This is, this is more to do, as I understand, it's sort of a hangover from COVID. Um, everyone wanted to rush to make sure everything from masks to drugs to so on, they, their cupboards were stocked. Um, where do we sit in that cycle? Yeah, so there's absolutely, there's inventory overhangs in, in several areas. One area is that at the drug manufacturers, they obviously, there's a scramble to make sure they had enough supply for their, their patients. So what we're seeing is the, um, the manufacturers of those drugs who are often outsourced, we're seeing this kind of bioproduction uh, buildup of inventory, which um, people were hoping would bottom in sort of the middle of 2023, but it hasn't yet. So, you know, uh, pharma and biotech companies are still working through their inventory and then, you know, not giving revenues or new orders to their um, suppliers. Um, so that's a continuing theme and it's probably at, at some point in the first half of 24 that will normalize. But then we've got other areas in, you know, such as uh, instrumentation, you know, through research instrumentation and tools and consumables, even things like pipettes, <coughs> the, the, the standard stuff you use to, um, right. to conduct research. Those, there was also a rush for those uh, during mm -hmm. COVID and, um, and there's been a bit of a build up and, and now a pause uh, from that perspective too. Fascinating. When you go around the world and you look at the different markets and, and again, for opportunities, sort of the relative trade, I keep seeing headlines that um, drug companies and, and other healthcare companies are, are sort of doubling their operations in India, or you see a real uptake, uh, uptick in investment in India. And, and I'm curious, maybe almost to contrast that with China and where, where it sits in terms of opportunities in, in the global healthcare space. Yeah, I mean, India is obviously a very exciting market from sort of a, you know, a demographic perspective and, and the fact that the, um, you know, the percentage of spend on healthcare or, you know, the percentage of GDP is very low compared to, you know, the Western world. I think 
don't have the numbers at hand, but you know, China and India, are, you know, certainly sub 10%, whereas the US is, you know, 18% of GDP is spent on healthcare. So there's a kind of a penetration GDP uh, story for healthcare in those emerging markets. We haven't, however, seen a huge amount of kind of offshoring uh, to those areas, you know, if, uh, in the last two years. You know, I think pharma companies have always wanted to ensure they have kind of dual supply for their products. Um, and so we, there hasn't been a significant shift to either China or India from a supply chain perspective. Um, I think they've always been quite astute in terms of making sure they have appropriate supply. And, you know, the, a lot of the drugs are very high gross margin products. So, you know, you know, it's not so much an issue of necessary needing to to make the drugs for a cheap price because they already have good margins, quite frankly. Right. Fascinating. So it's not as commoditized uh, in some, you know, some some discussions will go in that direction. China itself as a place to invest has <clears throat> been weaker than some expected. Um, I'm wondering if that also holds true for healthcare and actually what the prospects are going forward. Yeah, China has been very weak. So at the beginning of the year, we expected a recovery as COVID lockdowns eased. Um, and we saw that for a couple of months, but it has not persisted. The economy has been has been weak. Um, there, I think there have been well understood concerns about the property market, the lack of stimulus because of concerns about the property market. And so what we're hearing from the healthcare companies is that there is less funding available from the regional governments who support a lot of the hospitals which are are centralized and so you know they are seeing slower orders for for things like their instruments or even some of the large um hospital equipment such as mri scanners and and things like that um in conjunction there's also been sort of an anti-corruption campaign focused on hospitals which oh, is further, this further slowed down the procurement process so the western companies we speak to Say this is a good thing because obviously they are not participating in in corruptive measures anyway, and so they're saying it will kind of level the playing field. But um, it has led undeniably to a pause in uh, procurement by the Chinese hospitals. So we've got you know pressure from you know factors like that, pressure from a funding um, perspective, um, and it's you know it's something that that has slowed down for a lot of the Western companies selling into China. Does it um, look like a good opportunity based on all those things? Well, I think, you know, the companies we speak to, and I think intuitively we think about it, still believe that the long-term opportunity in China is, is very real. Um, again, a bit like India, it's underpenetrated from a, a, you know, a spend perspective. We've still got huge um, emerging middle-class wealth and you know, urbanization. So, you know, there will continue to be a increased healthcare need. And unlike India, the Chinese demographics are also aging um, as well. So I, I do think there will be um, undoubtedly increased need for, for healthcare equipment and, and supplies. Um, but it is difficult to ascertain, you know, when that will turn around. You know, for a lot of the companies, it will be they will have five to 10% revenue exposure to China. So it's not significant, but it has previously been a fast growing part of the market, which has slowed down. Yeah, okay, very interesting. Just to check in there, there are a number of great questions coming in. Um, so so one of them actually, is, so does the portfolio cover anything in the preventative medicine field? Uh, uh, the example, this in 
investor is saying is nutrition, but but perhaps across the boards. Uh, I don't think we do have anything in, in nutrition at the moment. Uh, the areas in terms of preventative um, exposure we would have is, you know, diagnostics. We've got a number of companies involved in, in diagnostics, which, as we all know from COVID, was particularly important because if you can diagnose people earlier, there's a huge cost saving to, to helping keep them out of out of hospital. Um, so there's, there's some really good diagnostic businesses that we own. Um, but yeah, not in not in nutrition. We discussed um, obesity drugs earlier, and this is a great question because it is almost all, all that you hear about sort of in, in um, broadly in the press. So do you think the drug makers are prioritizing obesity drugs and perhaps less focused on cancer drugs at this point? Uh, no, I think there's a huge, you know, the, the companies which have made the big breakthroughs in obesity are the companies that have traditionally been very focused on diabetes because it was an iterative process because they had fantastic, they had these GLP-1 drugs for diabetes and a side effect of treating the diabetes very well was that they also saw a lot of weight loss um, and then they tweaked them further to then focus also for uh, the obesity market. So those companies, you know, Lilly and Novo, you know, Novo has no oncology exposure, they're focused on diabetes and Lilly does have some oncology drugs as well, which they're continuing to sell. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the other companies like AstraZeneca or Merck are still very focused uh, on oncology. Um, and that's, you know, still a huge market where there's a lot of opportunity to improve patient outcomes. So, so no, I, don't, I you know, I don't think um, obesity has been at the expense of oncology. I think they're both important, really large markets for, for the drug makers. I don't think we have too many conversations these days without mentioning AI and how it might ultimately come in to be um, helpful to companies. Uh, across the healthcare universe, wh where do you see AI being most useful even right now or you know, just around the corner? Where, where are you seeing it first? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I think there's not a huge amount of kind of direct, um, tangible AI use in healthcare. It's it's used, I think, most clearly in areas such as, you know, diagnostics, as well as um, kind of drug discovery research. So a lot of the large pharma companies that may spend eight to $10 billion already per annum on R&D are, are utilizing, you know, um, machine learning and AI to try and identify the next drug target. Um, but, you know, that's something which they've We've been doing for probably a number of years and they keep in-house so it's not like an investment opportunity that you know as a standalone business that i can take advantage of but they're already kind of utilizing some of those tools um but elsewhere ai is you know is something that you know from a healthcare perspective will hopefully make hospitals and you know uh, patient record systems more efficient and that will certainly be welcome but again you know there are there are very few listed hospital chains. You know, the main one is HCA, which is in the US and has 20% you know, market share in certain pockets of the US, not not across the whole of the US. But most healthcare systems across the globe are are nationalised. And you know, I think um, you know trying to roll out something like AI across, for example, the national healthcare system in the US would be, I I should think, a very very difficult, very helpful, but a very tall order in terms of making sure all the data and the management systems are aligned. But uh, I should think in 
future years, it can only be more helpful, but probably a much longer term impact. It's interesting, yeah. I, Canada's healthcare system is is not dissimilar to to the NHS. Certainly not exactly the same, but but in the sense that it's it's um, the government is what runs it essentially. So yeah, yeah it's exactly. just a, a harder a harder way to to roll things off. Does the fund include sometimes seen as more binary or or speculative areas of biotech, the smaller cap biotech company names? Uh, no, we've got you know one half a percent position in a small biotech company that our, our analyst really likes, and it seems that the the mechanism is is relatively de-risk. But otherwise, you know, unlike competitors that have about twenty percent exposure to small cap biotech, we have just that one half a percent position. It's, the core strategy is to invest in good quality businesses with attractive return on capital, good free cash flow, good balance sheets, and attractive you know, organic growth. So, you know, we are, um, you know, focused on good quality businesses within healthcare. So we have very little of that sort of binary um, small cap biotech. You know, the, the way I prefer to get exposure to all that biotech innovation and spending is through the, um, the, the suppliers, you know, the companies that help run the clinical trials, like, you know, Icon and IQVIA, they, they literally run the clinical trials for the biotech companies. They're a beneficiary of biotech spending. Uh, the companies that help manufacture the drugs, if the biotech drug is successful and they have you know, thousands of customers, so they're not exposed to any one binary event. And then the companies that are also selling the kind of the research instrumentation and um, and tools to, to the biotech companies to carry out their R&D. So, you know, as, as I've probably said before, I prefer the picks and shovels makers rather than the the gold mines which are much more hit and miss yes and and so that also goes to sort of ultimately the the defensive character of this of this industry broadly but also this fund in particular maybe just bring us back to that because we, we kind of asked you at the beginning how how well healthcare as a sector has done the the index uh, over the course of the last decade and a half or so um, but it provides that sleep at night, which I guess doesn't go with the speculative biotechs. Well, exactly, exactly. So it's definitely got, you know, a third of the fund is still large cap biopharma. You know, those that I feel have um, have limited downside and don't have exposure to that binary pipeline risk. Um, so you've got a third of the fund in, in large cap biotech and pharma. And then the other two thirds are in, you know, world-class, you know, managed care companies, uh, United Healthcare, diagnostic and tools companies like Thermo Fisher or Danaher, um, and then medical device companies that do hip and knee uh, replacements like um, like Stryker or Boston Scientific, who you know do lots of cardiology. So, you know, just really good businesses with good attractive high single digit growth and, and good free cash flow and double digit earnings growth, which will compound over the coming decades, hopefully. Fantastic. Alex Gold, I want to thank you for joining us here today, taking the questions from, from all the investors joining you here today. And um, thank you for bringing us up to date on a fascinating part of the markets right now. All the best. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. 
while visiting Fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.